What I'm concerned about is it has appeared to me to be this excessive sort of negativity about nursing, around hospitals. And I'm not saying that this isn't real. But what I'm saying is that it is such a drowning out of all other sort of messages that are getting out. And it worries me that if it's not counterbalanced by positive messages, what we could see happen is people who are thinking right now in high school about, oh, I want to go into nursing. But given what I've been seeing over the past year, maybe, maybe not. And that concerns me because if we should have a decrease in the entrance into nursing. That million nurses that I mentioned a minute ago that are projected to be coming into the workforce over the decade may not occur. Hello and welcome to The Handoff, a podcast about the most critical topics in nursing. Today is our last episode of season four, and it's one of the leading voices in the conversation around nursing workforce and someone whose work I've long admired, Dr. Peter Bierhaus. Dr. Peter Bierhaus is a healthcare economist and professor in the College of Nursing at the University of Montana at Bozeman. Today, we talk about his research on the long-term impacts of COVID-19 on the nursing profession and some of the historical precedents that can give us hints at the future. Peter also shares what keeps him up at night, specifically how the constant negative messaging around nursing could ultimately dissuade young people from pursuing it as a career path. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm looking forward to it. So, Peter, I know you do a lot of stuff, and I think last time I, I heard you speak was at, I think it was the AONL conference, and you were talking about some of the latest research you've been doing on the nursing workforce. So, I know you're up to a million things, but what are some of the big projects you're working on right now? A couple of different things. One is that we're looking at immediate impacts of the COVID pandemic on the nursing workforce, and then the longer-term impacts. And so on the immediate side, it's from an economic perspective. We're looking to see how has it affected the employment of RNs and LPNs and nursing aides in total and then in various different employment settings, hospitals, nursing homes, other areas. We're looking at unemployment as well. Has there been changes in the unemployment rates? And are we seeing any sort of differences by age of the nurse? In other words, do we see evidence that maybe some older nurses are leaving the workforce a little faster than what they had planned? And or do we see any effects that are related to a nurse's race or gender? And again, we're looking at various settings. And that's one part of it. Second is we're surveying nurses themselves nurse leaders, the leaders in most organizations, particularly hospitals. And we've also surveyed the public to see, are they more or less willing to recommend nursing as a career? And then the final part of this project is this year, we'll be focusing in on what is all of the immediate impacts of COVID mean for the longer term growth in the supply of nurses? Will we continue to see a growing supply, which we've projected leading right up to the COVID, or will things change and we'll have less numbers of people going into nursing? So that's one big project. And then there's a few others that we're working on as well, but that's the main one for nursing. Well, those are three huge questions to answer. And I think on the top of mind of everyone in the country, at least in the healthcare system, about you know what's going to happen to the nursing pipeline. Do you have any like preliminary assumptions that you're testing or, or any data that's showing anything interesting at the moment? 
You know, back in 2017, we published a paper in the journal Health Affairs, and it projected at that time that we would grow the workforce by about a million nurses between 2017, 2018, out to 2030. And this was a big relief because we were able to show that numerically, that is, enough millennials had come into the workforce to replace the baby boomers. And not only to replace this baby boom generation, and I'm talking about 1.2 million nurses that were born in the baby boom generation. So we would be able to replace them and then grow the workforce by another million. So this was really positive news in 2017. And then recently, Dan, we updated those numbers using data up through 2019, just before the pandemic started. And again, everything seemed on track. We're still going to grow this workforce by roughly a million over this current decade. So that's the good news in terms of just before COVID. And it's now to then figure out, will COVID disrupt those long-term projections? And I sure as heck hope they don't. It's interesting. We did a survey of about a thousand nurses and about 40% said they were less committed to nursing than they were before the pandemic. And, you know, there's just the kind of these signals that are popping up that I don't know if nurses will leave it. I think they're questioning whether, you know, the traditional sites of care are where their passion is, the bedside, you know, hospital acute care kind of things. And they're seeing so much opportunity in other areas, ambulatory care, telehealth and others. I wonder if there's going to be a shifting of where nursing talent tends to go and prefer to work. And maybe it's not in the hospital. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's one big sort of bucket of questions that we don't really have answers to yet. What will the workforce do? Now, some may leave and may leave a little sooner than they had planned some of those retiring nurses. And I want to be clear that when I said there were 1.2 million baby boom nurses, that is factually correct. But we've lost over this past decade, about half of those who've already retired. So we've got another roughly 640,000 retiring nurses yet to go in the workforce. We know that they're going to go one way or the other. It's just they could go sooner. That's one of those questions that sort of is in that bucket that you were talking about. And then how is the workforce going to move around and shift around? And how is the our employers going to manage all that? That's part of that. What I'm concerned about is it has appeared to me to be this excessive sort of negativity about nursing around hospitals that is just being reported daily or hourly or by the minute. It's about shortages. It's about all the difficulties that nurses are undergoing, the stresses and on and on. And it's just constant. You know, you can't get away from it. And I'm not saying that this isn't real. But what I'm saying is that it is such a drowning out of all other sort of messages that are getting out. And it worries me that if it's not counterbalanced by positive messages, what we could see happen is people who are thinking right now in high school about, oh, I want to go into nursing. But given what I've been seeing over the past year, maybe, maybe not. Or parents, the same thing. This may not be the profession I want to recommend to my child. And that concerns me because if we should have a decrease in the entrance into nursing, that million nurses that I mentioned a minute ago that are projected to be coming into the workforce over the decade may not occur. 
And we need those nurses. And so you may remember, Dan, but you're a young guy, so you may not. But some listeners may remember this. Back in the 90s, this was the decade of hospital structuring and managed care. And it was that time when, you know, the 60s, we had Medicare and Medicaid. And by the end of that decade, costs were going up and spending was going up. The 70s, the feds and the states all tried to regulate hospital costs and healthcare. That didn't work. The 80s was prospective payment and DRGs kind of worked. Then we got into the 90s and said, all right, let's try market competition and we'll use HMOs to be that vehicle. Well, hospitals had to quickly lower their prices so that they could compete and get contracts with HMOs. And to do that, they decreased their employment of registered nurses, which annually had been increasing 2 to 3% per year in the 90, early 90s. Now they slowed down that employment, but they let go a lot of the support staff around nurses, the aides, the orderlies, and assistants, and LPNs. And RNs got very concerned about the impact on quality of care and safety. And they went to the streets and there were marches around the country, but particularly in Washington. And they were loud and they were vocal. Congress got excited. A new Institute of Medicine study was developed. And this went on for several years. And as a consequence, interest in nursing decreased sharply. From about 5% of all freshmen students were thinking about nursing in 1995 down to 2% a few years later. And the number of graduates started to plummet. In 1995, we had about 97,000 total graduates that year. In 1999, just four years later, it was down to 67,000. So the number graduating dropped by 30,000. It went on for quite a while. And by 1998, we had a national shortage of nurses. And by 2001, we had 126,000 open vacant positions that hospitals were trying to recruit. And that was our last large, big national shortage of nurses was way back in that 2000 to 2002 period, driven in large part by this decreasing number of people coming into nursing having seen all these images. And so I today see that sort of same setup playing out, this overly negative views could dampen people coming into nursing, and that could take away all those forecasts that we mentioned. We've really got to start controlling this message, being honest and truthful, of course, but let's start showing some positive images of nurses and the innovations and the, the things that they have done that are for the benefit of society and for their organizations and be much more positive so that we can assure that we will have a growing supply of nurses in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important point. I'm glad you brought it up and, and told the history because we can learn a lot from that. 
that message gets amplified. I mean, I had to delete Instagram the other day because I was, you know, on nurse Instagram and everything is so negative. Like it's so bad and it just, it infects you. And you're just like, okay, I guess this is what nursing is now. And you kind of get frustrated. Then I go talk to my colleagues. We're like, we can make change, but everyone's so sad at the moment. And I think you're right. We do have to change that message. I was looking at one statistic and it may be wrong, but I think it was from the Bureau of Labor Statistics saying we need, you know, 175,000 nurses through 2029 or something. And last time I Googled the numbers, it was something like we graduated only about 150,000 in the US every year. Are those right numbers or what's kind of the current forecast in the next, you know, three or four years for the need for nurses? Well, I stay on the supply side portion of that because the demand side is so difficult to forecast because you just can't anticipate so many things that affects the demand. For example, COVID. And so how do you really know that? The man projections that are out there, I don't feel do a good job taking into account the aging of our population, the growth of dual eligible beneficiaries, Medicare and Medicaid, the frail elderly, the lack of primary care that continues to worsen, not get better, the growth in behavioral health and mental health, and then eternal mortality. Just that set of examples, I don't think are well covered in demand estimates. So I sort of don't pay attention. I watch the supply side because we're going to need a lot of nurses to take care of those growing areas that I just mentioned. I want to see strong growth in supply because the other factor, Dan, is we've got to replace those baby boomers. And yes, we'll do it numerically, but we've found in this past six or seven years that, you know, a new graduate just can't replace a nurse with 20 and 30 years of experience. There's just no way. And so we need to have time for that workforce to grow, to mature, to get fully up on its feet. All that is predicated on this growing supply of nurses. So I think I've evaded your question. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. The impetus for it, and this is kind of a thesis that I've been developing, is we have good grasp of demand in the moment. We may not be able to predict out very far because of all the factors you mentioned, but we know there's X many thousand jobs you know, out in the world for nurses at any given moment. Where I find struggle is we know the supply generally, but do we know, you know, in any given state, how many ICU nurses that are trained on XYZ that could actually come fill some of these roles? Do we have that granular data across the country on the supply side? Not across the country, but I bet you there's a few states that have really invested well in their data capacity and would probably either know that or have a pretty good working guess on that, but not in general. I don't think we have that kind of granularity. Do you think that something like that would be beneficial? Or how do you think, if we had that granular data, like let's say, you know, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing just created this unique nurse identifier. We have the MPI that's been out for a while. If we were able to tie, you know, a nurse's career path to a data set and know where they are, what they're doing, what their competencies were, do you think that would help us move the workforce around more efficiently? Or is it sort of like nurses just want to work within 40 miles of where they live and they don't really do the whole you know, other than the small subset of travel, kind of go out and find those matched roles beyond kind of their local area? It's a really important question. And my sense is you're probably right a little bit on the latter part, but on the former part about having that data, I think we would benefit greatly from that because I think there are probably some 
opportunities to move the workforce through different incentives to get the nursing workforce distributed where they're needed most. And we'll need some of this information too if we're thinking about a more diverse workforce as well. But I think even if we had had all this, the fact that COVID came in so hard, so fast, with so many really, really sick patients, the demand for these ICU and critical care nurses was just so high that it would have overwhelmed our supply regardless. And so I think in general, this is a good idea, Dan, what you're suggesting, but we have to be aware that we could have another surge. And it may not be of intensively sick patients, it could be something else. And will we be able to quickly pivot our workforce to better manage those insults, I I think would be benefited by having the data that you mentioned. Yeah, it's always been an an interesting thought that if we had that, maybe there was some way to match nurses differently. But I'm also curious how you do some of this forecasting. Like, What are some of the tools and methods you use to forecast supply and get down to the numbers you end up presenting and and sharing that really drive a lot of decision-making and policy? I think the first big tool is working with really great people. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the first tool. That's the best advice you can have. (laughs) I'm telling you, and I mean that by my colleagues, Doug Steger, an economist at Dartmouth, and he really sort of developed the initial model. And it was somewhat influenced by Angus Deaton, who was an economist at Princeton, and who had developed this model. And Angus actually got a Nobel Prize as well. And so Doug was sort of influenced by this and developed this model that looks at the sort of three effects, the population effect, which is how many people are out there in our population? Because the more people there are, the more likely there'll be more people who are interested in becoming a nurse. And if there's fewer people, then less people interested in nursing. A second factor was over the age span of a nurse, do you see periods of time when they are more or less likely to be working in the workforce? And this is really important for nursing since it's still predominantly made up of women and women are having children and raising children. And so we've been able to look to see at what ages do you see a decreasing number of women in the workforce? And when do they come back into the workforce after childbearing? And then a third factor is what's going on in society that might promote people going into nursing? For example, when you know we were talking a minute ago of that big, big national shortage of nurses back in 2001, this was bad. This was getting really difficult. And it was the Johnson & Johnson campaign that was developed and portrayed nurses very, very positively. And that sort of turned a lot of people's minds to thinking about nursing. And then you had 911 back then, which caused, we found, older people in their 30s, not old people, but older in their 30s to say, you know, I've been doing this job forever. I don't like it. I don't feel satisfied. I always thought about becoming a nurse. I'm just going to do it. And so they did. And so that helped grow the number of people coming into nursing. The idea is we're looking for changes and signals in society that causes people to become a nurse. Looking at the age effect, which is 
you know, tracking their participation in the workforce over their life cycle, and then the size of the population. We put all that together, and we have decades worth of data, and we're able to very precisely sort of project the future using these three concepts. I don't mean to be bragging, but we've been really quite accurate in our our models, and we could predict things that were, you know, unseen at the time that the data would suggest. I hope that makes some sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really helpful to understand, you know, all of those factors that come in. What are some of the interesting ways that that data has been used for some decision-making? You've shared this with all kinds of people. You've published a ton. But are there some, like, key decisions or key influences that you've had with this work that you're like, wow, I never thought that, you know, my model or our model could do X, Y, Z or influence this thing? Yeah, I think of maybe two big examples One was when we first developed this model, we published it in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they took it, they published it, and we projected at that time that unless things changed, we would face a workforce shortage, nursing workforce shortage of maybe a half a million nurses by 2020. And that would be five times bigger than any other previous shortage and it would paralyze the workforce. That got Congress real, real excited. And ultimately, they passed legislation called the Nurse Reinvestment Act that threw in the weight of the federal government to grow the capacity of nursing education programs and and student loans and things like that, that really helped provide incentives for new nurses. And it gave nursing education programs incentives to innovate and to try different kinds of programs to attract those nurses or those people in their 30s, etc. And it also led to the private sector, the J&J Corporation, for example, based their campaign for nursing's future on this article. And other state workforce centers were developed of about 35 in total over the next 10 years. So that piece of work was enormously effective in kind of getting the production back into nursing and getting rid of all the negatives that were occurring in the 90s. And then real quickly, the second piece that I think has come out is we've applied our model that was built on nurses to forecast the physician workforce. And we've done two things there that I think were fun. We sort of showed that some of these same effects occurred with physicians as of nursing, but the physician workforce people at a point said, ah, you know, women are 40% of what a man is in terms of contributing into the workforce. And so they said, all these growing numbers of women physicians, it's not going to grow the workforce. It's bad news. And we come along and show, yeah, but they come piling back into the workforce in their 40s and 50s because of our work with nursing. And that really sort of changed the whole dynamics of physician forecasts, I think for the better. That's A. But B, recently, a few years ago, we forecast the future supply of nurse practitioners and physicians in the country and of physicians working in rural areas. And we showed the a very slow production of physicians over the next 10 years. And we contrasted that with an explosive growth of nurse practitioners. And that in turn has caused policymakers to really focus a lot more on 
how do we take advantage of this nurse practitioner workforce that's growing, that's more willing to be in rural areas, now armed with data that shows, hey, this is where you want to invest your workforce dollars. Because if you do it with physicians, you know, good luck, because it's not going to get us the workforce that's needed to take care of society. So kind of a long answer, but two great, I think, outcomes coming out of that body of work. I think that's awesome. And, and you know, those are both really at the macro level as well. And, and I've just seen through the whole pandemic, the same issues at the micro level of inability to forecast supply and demand and, you know, throwing money at the problem and trying to throw people at the problem. And part of it, you know, I think moving into the new world of technology enabled care is nursing may look different and we may not need the same number and they may not be in this, the same work. And so I've been trying to push our nursing colleagues to, you know, let's not double down on the past. Let's learn from it and figure out what the future is. Cause you know, Blockbuster doubled down on the past. We all know what happened <laughs> to that company. And so nursing needs to use the data and the evidence they have and jump off of it into the future. <laughs> totally. I'm with you, Dan. And I would also say that what's exciting is that I think hospitals particularly, but other organizations want to do it too. I don't think they want to go back to the past. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to go back to the 90s and, no. <laughs> and yeah. all the shortage and then that kind of stuff. Yeah. What are you most optimistic about for the future of nursing? I think what has been stunning and amazing to me, and it gives me pride as a nurse because I'm the nurse on most of my research teams, is to be able to show through various sorts of data how strongly the public feels about nursing in terms of trust, in terms of respect and admiration. And it's been this consistent, positive recognition. And, and you know, and listeners know the yearly Gallup polls that are done in December. And they show that time and time, about mid-80s percentage, you know, 85 or so percent of the public feels very positively towards nurses. And it's 20 points above what physicians are. It's not a little bit more than physicians. It's a lot. And that's been consistent. And they also trust nurses more than any other profession or organization to improve the healthcare system. And this was found in a big Harvard, Commonwealth, New York Times funded national survey of the public back in the fall of 2019 before pandemic. And in it, it showed that the public was 30 percentage points more likely to say they trusted nursing to improve the healthcare system above that of physicians. And as a consequence of this strong public support, we've had many, many foundations and federal and state governments invest in nursing. And you think of, well, I've mentioned the J&J program that started in 2002. It's a new initiative that started a few years ago. But the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has spent, I bet you it's getting close to a billion dollars on nursing over the past two decades. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation on the West Coast, the uh, Macy Foundation, educated 10,000 nurses. All of that and much more has come to nurses because of this positive perception. And I know of no other profession who can you know, even show anything near that. You're right. There's so much support for the profession in all of these different factors. And despite all the negativity we talked about, you know, it's still an amazing opportunity to impact the world and people's lives and do good and, and actually really change 
entire communities and populations. And so you mentioned all that. It's, you know, that nursing is like this bedrock of the United States and many other countries. And we have to continue to shine a light on it and and show all the amazing ways that people can come into the profession and change their communities for the good. You said it better than me. <laughs> well, you know, the host just summarizes. So I <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, we like to wrap up the show with a handoff. What is that one nugget that you want to pass on to the listeners? And so, Peter, I'd love to hear what you'd like to hand off. I would say a couple of things. One is the message. Let's be careful with that. We don't want to wreck what looks to be a positive decade of growth. We're going to have a lot of change coming in. And I'm optimistic about this change will be for the better, but we do need to grow that workforce and we need to get seriously positive. And that means all of us. So that's one piece. One thing that we didn't discuss, Dan, but it's on my mind, is that as we move into this new decade post-COVID, we're going to really have to get very, very familiar with value-based payment that is been sort of put on the back burner, if you will, given COVID. But pretty quickly, that's going to be inside nurses' world. And it's not something that the hospitals or other organizations do. We've got to understand it and take advantage of it, because I think this is going to create a very new and positive economic relationship with our employers. So maybe we can do that another another conversation, but I think that's the one that people really need to start thinking seriously about and getting prepared for. Yeah, that last one I think is so critical. And, you know, let's get nurses out of the room charge and actually reimburse for the value they add to the system and all those types of things that can really change the game and how workforce is built and how nurses are staffed and all kinds of different things. So I think that's the critical conversation. Yes, we'll have to do another show maybe when we get into that. So that'd be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Peter, it's been awesome to chat with you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. And where's the best place for people to find more about your research and more about you if they want to learn more? Well, they could probably ping me. That would be the best way to go. My email address is peter.beerhaus, B-U-E-R-H-A-U-S, at montana.edu. And be happy to sort of correspond. But Dan, thank you. I wanna, uh, this has been fun. I've known you for a little bit, but this is a good time to have a great conversation. And thanks for doing what you're doing. Yeah, no, appreciate it. And yeah, it's always awesome to just have these conversations and push the walls a little bit. So with that, take a look at Peter's work. There's tons of articles we'll put in the show notes as well. And yeah, get out there and change the message. It's got to be positive. We got to get more people into nursing. And this is the profession that's going to change the world. So let's do it. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for tuning into The Handoff. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a review and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more information about Trusted, please visit trustedhealth.com. This is Dr. Nurse Dan. See you next time.